0: Good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. This morning we're returning to our study in Ephesians. We've made it we've made our way to Ephesians chapter 4. As I said earlier in the announcements, I I'm thankful that we're able to gather physically again. On Friday, uh, the President of the United States came out and declared churches as essential. Essential. It says he, he, and I quote the President, he says, "...some governors have deemed liquor stores and abortion clinics as essential, but have left out churches and other houses of worship. It's not right." So I'm correcting this injustice, calling houses of worship essential, I call upon governors to allow our churches and places of worship to open right now." End quote. Well, I hope that you as the church never saw the church as anything other than absolutely essential. Jesus declared the church to be essential in Matthew 16:18 when he said that the gate he upon this rock He would build his church, and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. He demonstrated that the church is essential when he purchased her with his own blood. If that's not essential, I'm not sure what is. Beloved, COVID-19 or politics will not prevail against the church just this past Friday afternoon, after the evening, that is, after the president had said that churches are essential, the Ninth Circuit Court, an especially interesting court in California, federal court, (coughs) came out and upheld the governor of California's injunction against churches' meeting. I'm not quite sure where it's going to lead. I'm not quite sure politically what's going to happen. I do know, I do know that <clears throat> it's, clear, it's clear that's a violation of the First Amendment. As the church, we are essential. We, we should be meeting, if at all possible, Now, let me make sure I'm careful here to say that we must love our neighbor. We must love our neighbor. And obviously, when there's something at risk for our neighbor, we need need to do everything that we can to protect and love our neighbor. But we also must trust that God will sovereignly protect the, the bride of Christ. please continue to pray please continue to pray for us as a church as we continue to make crucial decisions regarding this ministry but I want you to also pray for the church especially in those places that they clearly are dealing with something more than what we are the state is saying you cannot meet not even with the best practices scientifically to protect your people but I will say that the church is being clearly blessed by God that in times when the church is oppressed is when God is most clearly at work in his church I just want you to say I want you to know that here at Grace Bible Church God is clearly blessing this church He is clearly building his church, and you are the evidence of those who, of the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, let me pray for us this morning, and we'll get started in Ephesians chapter 4. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you this morning. We thank you that you are, again, you're sovereign, you're on your throne. or do you, none of these things that these affairs of men whether it be the president or whether it be the ninth circuit court or whether it be the governor of california or whether it be any political figure where they do nothing outside of what you've directed or we know that this and it seems as though that this time coming up is going to be a transition for the church. We don't know what is going to happen. We don't know what the result will be. But we know that you will be glorified. That you will be still on your throne ruling. And there's nothing that man can do even if he shakes his fist at you. There's nothing that man can do to change that. We know that you have made your church essential. That you are the one who says what is essential and what is not. And according to your word, the church is the most essential thing we can do. The most essential thing we can be a part of. Lord, I pray as a church that we would see that and understand it, that we would live it. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read for you Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. As some of you know, I am a professional, licensed professional engineer, I first received my license back in Arkansas in the mid-90s, over 25 years ago. You probably know that as an engineer, I'm professionally committed to a code of conduct, which sets me apart as an engineer. There are certain ways that I'm expected to act as an engineer to protect the public's interest. If I choose to act in a way that endangers the public, I will be reprimanded and could lose my licensure. I could even be fined and sent to jail in extreme cases of misconduct. Now, I'm confident that each of you agree that I should be held to account if I act in a way that endangers the public. Just this past week, I received an email from the Arkansas Board of Engineers, which caught me off guard. It said this, They are proposing the deletion of the character requirements such as good moral character and moral turptitude or wickedness in compliance with Act 990. So basically, they're taking, no longer are you required to, to uphold good, what is called good moral character or moral turptitude. So I went and I read Act 990, and what I found out is that the state will now tightly define the reasons why a person should be denied licensure based on specific crimes committed. Things like murder and kidnapping will get your license revoked. But in any case, case, you can't be licensed as an engineer and be a bad citizen, as defined by our legislative and court systems. In other words, there's a code of conduct which is expected by those who are licensed as engineers. Now, I know some in the body are, are doctors and nurses and accountants, and I'm certain that there are, there's a code of conduct which you are expected uh, to adhere to. And most of us would agree that this is a good thing for the most part. Speaking of a code of conduct, it is fitting that Monday is Memorial Day, a day to remember those who have sacrificed their lives for our country and our freedom. Now, on Thursday I mentioned, and I, we just found out last week, that that my son andrew and and his friend hunter his friend hunter that is will be move or uh, leaving that is shipping out to go to the marines they're going to boot camp uh hunter will be leaving on june 1st and andrew will be leaving on well we don't know exactly we thought it was going to be june 15th but looks like it's going to be pushed to july you may rem- you may remember that andrew's friends one of andrew's friends paul left for the marines last june he is currently based in san diego california now i hope that i am i'm incredibly thankful for paul and hunter and andrew's commitment to join the armed forces as you know the the marines are well known for being the most difficult branch of the military now here's what i want to say in order for them to become marines they have to endure much physical suffering to get through basic training they have to endure much physical suffering in order to, to be able to say, I am a Marine, to be able to be called a Marine. And then there's a code of conduct once they become a Marine that they expect, they're expected to adhere to, right? Now, I'm praying that God gives all these young men the strength to endure and to excel in their training and that they become Marines and that they, they act like Marines... What's the first word that comes to mind when you think of the Marines? For me, it's discipline. Discipline is the first word that pops in my mind. I remember when Paul came back from his basic training, he was a different man than from the one who left two weeks after his high school graduation. You could see a higher level of discipline in him. You see, there are expectations that you must meet to become a Marine. There are expectations that you must meet to remain a Marine. Now, this isn't about the Marines, is it? You see, all organizations have expectations, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a part of a sports team. It doesn't matter what type of team you're a part of. There is an expectation of what it means to be a part of that group. Those expectations are generally understood when you join that group. So it shouldn't be at all surprising that Christ, that the Lord Jesus Christ, calls his people to live in a certain way considering our position in his body. We find ourselves at the second main division in Ephesians, and most people would, most commentators would divide Ephesians into two parts the first part chapters one through three being more doctrinal the second being uh, chapters four through six which is more practical you see you have in the first three chapters orthodoxy and you have in the second three chapters orthopraxy now i would say that that there's actually three divisions there's chapter one and two which primarily focuses on our position in Christ and in his church. These chapters end with the truth that each Christian has been placed in the body of Christ and that we are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And then chapter 3 gives Paul's encouragement to the Ephesian church considering his, experience, his own experience of salvation and being placed into service to Christ. Paul wraps up this chapter by encouraging the church at Ephesus not to lose heart at his, at his tribulations, at their tribulations, or his tribulations on their behalf. Then he prays to the church that they would be strengthened in the inner man and would be able to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. And in the last two verses of chapter 3, Paul focuses on the power of God to do far more than we could ever ask or think. As such, Christians can have confidence that Christ is working to build His church, which we are part of, and nothing can thwart His promises to us. Therefore, nothing can separate us from His love. Now, this understanding is especially important because we need to remember that Paul, at this point, is imprisoned. He had been in prison for five years at this point in his ministry. And specifically, he had been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. More specifically, he had been preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, of which the church at Ephesus was a church made up mostly of Gentiles. The fact that Paul had been imprisoned was a potential discouragement to the church at Ephesus. You see, their earthly leader was in chains. He was no longer free to lead them. Yet Paul knew that the future of the church, and I'm not talking about the church at Ephesus, I'm talking about the big C church, the the future of the church, the future of Christianity, relied on this church, and more specifically, on this church's unity. On this church's unity. It is with this backdrop that we come to our passage today. The Apostle Paul wrote to encourage the Ephesian church with the truths of the gospel and the glorious nature of what God has done and is doing through His church to redeem the world to Himself. He wanted the the church at Ephesus to understand their role in that, what God is doing, that is, in God's plan. In these next verses, we'll find that Through Paul, God calls the church to unify, to unify for the purpose of taking the gospel to a lost and dying world. Now, this brings us to the structure of these next few verses. Now, I would argue that verse 1 forms Paul's proposition. Now, let me just say this before we go any further. All we're going to preach is verse 1 today. Uh, That's all I'm going to have time to get to. But I think we need to really lay a great foundation starting in verse 4 because I believe, as I'm saying here, I would argue that verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, forms Paul's proposition for the next three chapters. So we need to understand chapter 4, verse 1 in order to understand what Paul is trying to accomplish in these next three chapters. Said another way, Paul gives his purpose statement in verse 1 for the rest of the letter he states in verse 1 therefore i the prisoner of the lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called now based on this verse paul will use the next three chapters to teach the ephesian church what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling now i believe that verses 2 and 3 give the foundational truths for how we are to walk worthy Therefore, we have, been, we have based the proposition statement for this sermon on, on verse 1. And basically, for the next two or three sermons, we will come back to verse 1 and tie back to it as we walk through this section. I believe, then, that verses 2 and 3 give the foundational truths of how we are to walk. Let me read, let me read to you the, the proposition that you will find in your bulletin based on all that he has taught in chapters 1 through 3, Paul encourages the church at Ephesus to walk worthy of their calling for the purpose of unity within the body of Christ. He gives three crucial characteristics of this worthy walk, and we'll find those in verses 2 and 3. You must first personify humility and gentleness. That's verse 2a. Second, you must practice patience and forbearance. That's verse 2b. And third, you must preserve, be diligent to preserve unity and peace. Now, we'll spend, like I said, the rest of today's sermon exploring Paul's purpose statement in verse 1. So look at your text. Paul writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, Implore you to walk. Let's stop right there. The word therefore, I've heard it said, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, it's therefore the purpose of indicating that Paul is drawing attention to what he has said up to this point. Remember the first two chapters, our position in Christ? The third chapter, Paul saying, this is what Christ has done in saving me and placing me into service and how God has worked through me and how God is, a, is capable of working through you. It's incredibly important for us to recognize that this is the basis of Paul's exhortation, this foundational truth of our glorious salvation in Christ, which Paul has described in the first three chapters. Church, if here's, let me just say this, if you're not gripped by what Christ is doing through His church, If you have not, if your life has not been completely changed by how God has redeemed you and placed you in the body of Christ, if you are not encouraged to move forward in unity as a church by what Christ has accomplished in redeeming his people and taking those who are near and those who are far off and putting them together and making a new creation in Christ, if those things don't get you going, then we need to revisit and we need to re-preach the truths of chapters one through three. We need to go back and re-preach it all, because we didn't get it. But I hope that that doesn't describe us. I hope that we truly see what God is doing through the church. I hope that this excites us. Now, some very good men believe that Paul wrote this as a general letter intended for all the churches. Now, this certainly, there is certainly a sense by which this is true. We are benefiting here at Grace Bible Church. We are benefiting uh, from the truths of the, the, the letter to the church at Ephesus for the last, that, that it was written 2,000 years ago. We're still benefiting from it. This letter teaches us how to comprehend the, the church's purpose in the world. But I think that Paul intended this letter for the church at Ephesus. I've said it many times. He recognized the tr- strategic importance of the church. He knew that the church needed to be strong and needed to be uh unified because of its significance. And we'll see that that emphasis on unity over the next four cha- or three chapters. He knew that the church needed to be strong and unified. Christ always has church has always had churches which are strategically important to the mission of the gospel, not just to their local area, but to a broader area. There's churches today that come to mind, right? He uses these churches in specific time periods. And the church at Ephesus, as we know, is long gone. But Jesus used the church at Ephesus for a critical purpose at a vitally important time in the universal church's development. Now this brings up a particularly important application for us. You see, Christ has this church here in Gainesville for His purposes. And in some way, we don't know exactly, Uh, from our point of view, we don't know exactly, but in some way, we are vital to His plan. Now, it may be that we are vital to His plan right here in Gainesville, that God uses us right here in Gainesville. But it's my prayer that we would be used even further than that. Not because of our glory, right? Because of God's glory. You see, we're not the only church in town, and we're certainly not the only church in the world. We are merely a cog in the wheel. Yet we should never forget that God has a purpose for us. And I believe God is calling us, personally believe that God is calling us to preach the gospel to the nations, considering the transient nature of this town. You see, we're strategically located to be an influence for the gospel from Gainesville to the rest of the world. Now back to Ephesus, Christ used the church as a cog, the church at Ephesus as the cog in the wheel which united the churches in Asia Minor, the churches right around them, as well as the churches in the east and the west. As such, the local church at Ephesus was critical to the future growth of the church in the known world. I I hope you get that. I hope you understand how important and how strategic the church at Ephesus was. Therefore, that's why Paul is writing this letter. That's why Paul is so concerned about their unity. On June 6, 1944, the Allied forces began the invasion of Normandy. It was the largest seaborne invasion in history. Planning for this immense operation actually began in 1943 and took literally months to complete. The amphibious landings that we all know of was preceded by extensive aerial and naval bombardment. And that about at an airborne assault of about 24,000 American, British and, British, and Canadian airborne troops started shortly before midnight before the actual invasion force hit the next morning. All told, 39 different Allied divisions would be committed to the Battle of Normandy. 22 U.S., 12 British, 3 Canadian, 1 Polish and 1 French. There were over 1 million troops all under British command. The battle was extended. Exceedingly bloody. The Allies lost ten thousand uh, ca- had ten thousand casualties, with, casualties with over four thousand, almost forty five hundred confirmed dead on the first day. Why were the Allied commanders willing to undertake this operation, considering the heavy losses? They understood the vital importance of a of establishing a foothold in France. You see we could not have liberated France and the rest of Europe without that critical foothold at Normandy. Let's say, but let's say that the Allies established this foothold in France, that we fought for it, lost all these lives for it, then they neglected to attend to the unity of the troops who landed in, in Normandy. They just said, let it go. Let's, let's say they failed to establish the, the camps and instill the, the dis- discipline. Most likely, they would not have been able to organize and take the battle to the Germans. You see, any good expedi- expedition, military, or exploration, it seeks to establish a base of operations. You see, it would be impossible to climb a mountain such as Everest without establishing a base camp, right? The church at Ephesus was the base camp for missionary operations in that part of the world. Ephesus had been established as a beachhead for the church. That's why Paul is so concerned about them. That's why Paul is so concerned that he gives three chapters of how you ought to walk as a Christian. Now, in some ways, we've arrived at what I would consider the meat of the letter. As Paul begins to help the church maintain stability and gain unity for the fight ahead then the need for this encouragement is is heightened by the fact that paul who is their field general has been in roman custody for five years look at the text paul says therefore i the prisoner of the lord now before we delve into paul's status as the prisoner of the lord we need to we need to bring out a couple of truths from the text first Paul starts with the verb translated I implore in the, in the NAS. He actually starts with that. He starts in the in the Greek, in the Greek this word is fronted. This verb is fronted. He's I implore, I appeal, I entreat, I request. Now this usage seems to be more than an exhortation considering the context. The New King James translates the word beseech. But think of it this way. Paul, their field general, giving them orders to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. You see, Paul is their friend. Paul had been there. For a period of three years, he had been there. But this is not negotiable. He's calling them to their duty as Christians. But here's what I want you to understand their very survival and the survival of the rest of the churches according to what Paul's mind, according to what Paul thinks and what he's thinking to himself and what he's saying to them is their survival and the survival of the church depends upon them. Depends upon them being unified. Depends upon them walking in unity. Second, Paul uses the language in such a way that emphasizes that he calls them to a walk which he is personally familiar with. He's not calling them to anything that he doesn't do. He's not calling them to a life that he doesn't live. He calls them to walk in the same fashion that he himself walks. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he commanded the Corinthian church to be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Paul was completely sold out for Christ. And he was willing to even die, suffer and die for his Lord. And he wanted the church at Ephesus to be willing also to lay down their lives for Christ. He desired for them to give their all for Christ, including to live as would be pleasing to Christ. Now, beloved, we can't separate any of this from Paul's status. Paul had paid a high price for following Christ. He exemplified Matthew 16, 24. Remember that? When Jesus said to His disciples, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. Said another way, following Christ is costly. Paul had paid that price. And Paul would pay the ultimate price to follow Christ. Notice look at your text. he refers to himself as the prisoner of the Lord. Now we shouldn't read too quickly past this reference. This is not the first time that Paul has referred to himself in this in this fashion in three one he calls himself again the prisoner of Christ Jesus. He may be let me say it this way he may be the prisoner of the Romans. you see they are the ones who physically held him but We must realize that he is a prisoner. He is the prisoner of Christ. In other words, it is his Lord's will that he be in chains. And Paul submits to that will. Paul is thankful to be able to be the prisoner of Christ. The prisoner of Christ's will. You see, it's his will that put him in in those chains. Paul had, has been imprisoned for the cause of Christ on behalf of the Gentile church, but here in one he stresses more his union with Christ. As Harold Honer says, listen to this quote, This union with Christ resulted in his obedience to the will of God. Consequently, he became a missionary among the Gentiles, including the Ephesians, and was imprisoned for their sake. Now listen to this. He now exhorts them likewise to obey their Lord with whom they too have union. Beloved, this underscores our own responsibility to the Lord. You see, He has redeemed us, He has saved us by His grace through faith, He has made us alive together with Christ, He has seated us in the heavenlies in Christ. We have union with Him. You are in Him. Therefore, you are submitted to His will for your life. If He wills for you to go be in jail, then you need to go be in jail and be happy about it and thankful that you could serve Him in that way. Let's keep going. Look at your text. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy... Again, I would argue that Paul's, this is Paul's purpose statement for the rest of the letter. And I think you'll be able to see this as we, by looking at what we will call the walk motif in the letter of Ephesians. You see, Paul uses the word translated walk metaphorically to refer to our conduct or our lifestyle, whether negatively or positively. Now turn to chapter 2, verse 1. <coughs> Paul writes, and you were dead in your sins and tr- or trespasses and sins. He's speaking of your former life. He says it here in verse, in verse 2, in which you formerly walked. In which you formerly walked. So before Christ, you and I, all of us, were dead in our trespasses and sins. If you're not in Christ even today, if you haven't trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are still uh, walking, you are still dead in your trespasses and sins. Your life is characterized by walking in sin. Formerly, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. But in the richness of the Lord's mercy... He has made you alive together with Christ. That's verse 5. And He's raised you up, and He's seated you with Him in the heavenlies. Now watch this. Look at verses 8-10. through 10. So, this is your form of walk, but this is what God has done, and now Paul explains how it's happened. He says, you've been saved by His grace through faith. Now look at verse 10. He says this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would what? Walk in them. Brothers and sisters, God is taking you from walking in the lust of your flesh according to the course of this world to walk in His good works, from the world's ways to God's ways. Now this is a crucial point. This this is a crucial point. This is not about making and living by rules. If if you are a Christian, you know, it's interesting. I I know a lot of young people who don't come to Christ and their reasoning and their thoughts are, what they say is is because there's too many rules. You guys have too many rules. Well, I'm here to tell you that if you're in Christ, your affections are changed. He changes you so you desire to obey Him. You are a new creation. According to verse 10, you are now His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You see, your walk has been completely altered. You were on the the wide path leading to destruction. Now you're on the narrow path leading to eternal life. You no longer desire to live in the lust of your flesh. Now, you may be asking then, what does it look like to walk in these good works? What does it look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. If you asked, I'm glad you did. Look at chapters 4 through 6. Let me prove it to you. I'm just taking the time today to set the stage for the rest of this book, the rest of this letter. I want to take the time today to help you see the structure of the rest of this letter as we preach through verse 1. Now, listen. These chapters, verses 4-6, through are structured around five walk statements, forming the overarching description of the Christian walk. This is how we as Christians are called to live before the throne of God. This is kingdom life. This is the expectation of those who are of the kingdom. Now these are the five aspects of what we will call and on the front of your bulletin, you will see the worthy walk. Chapter 4, verses 1-16. through 16. We are called to walk worthy. Now, we're looking at this first statement, which I would argue is the overarching call to the Christian walk. Here in a few minutes and into next week, we will dive deep into this worthy walk by beginning to look at verses 2-6. through But here Paul is saying the worthy walk is one of humility, is one of gentleness and of patience and tolerance toward one another in the church. And it's also a walk which preserves the unity of the body. It's a walk which preserves the unity of the body. The second walk you'll find in First chapter 4, verse 17. We are commanded not to walk as the unsaved Gentiles. Look at Verse chapter 4, verse 17. He says this, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Here Paul calls the church to forsake their former lives and to walk as new creations in Christ. He exhorts the church to leave behind their former lives and to put on the new man which has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. That's verse 24. And he ends this section in verses 31 and 32 by calling for the church. Look at verse 31 and 32. He says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Now what you can imagine is is that He's calling at the beginning of this, not to walk as the Gentiles walk. Therefore, it's clear that that's how the Gentiles formerly would have walked in the lust of their flesh. So he's saying, forsake that. Stay away from it. Move away from it. Chapter 5, verse 1 gives us the the third walk. Chapter 5, verse 1, We are called to walk in love according to God's perfect design. Say that again. We're called to walk in love according to God's perfect design. Look at 5.1. Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Here he calls the church at Ephesus an awkward... <coughs> Excuse me. He calls the church at Ephesus and all Christians to walk, uh, have a walk that is characterized by love. Love for God and love for others. James calls this the royal law. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but ultimately loving your neighbor as yourself. James says that you're fulfilling this law of our king, the royal law, If you're fulfilling this, if you're doing this, if you're living in this way, then you are doing well. Again, let's not forget that this is Paul's call to walk or live worthy of Christ. Christ Himself said that love for God and love for neighbor are the two greatest commandments. If you are not loving one another, if you're not loving God above all else, and if you're not loving one another uh, more than you love yourself, or uh, as you love yourself, then you're not fulfilling the law of the kingdom. Fourth walk is in chapter 5, verse 7. We're called to walk as children of the light. It says in verse 7, Therefore do not be... Partakers with them—that's the Gentiles. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. As Christians, we are—we are not to participate then in the deeds and fr- the unfruitful deeds that is of darkness. The Apostle John says, and. First John 1, 6, If we say we have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in darkness, again, walk, walk in the darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Beloved, you as Christians are called to walk in the light. The fifth walk. <clears throat> I said there was five, right? The fifth is we are called to walk in wisdom. That's Ephesians 5 15 through 6.9. Look at 5.15. Ephesians 5.15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. As Christians, we are called to live life with the utmost of care. Our lives should be characterized by making sound and wise decisions, which show that we are making the most of our time and our resources. Our relationships should, in, should also indicate that we're walking in wisdom. Our relationship as husbands to our wives, our relationships as wives to our husbands, should show that we're walking in wisdom with one another. Our relationship to our children, we should be raising and rearing our children in wisdom. Our houses should be in order. It's the walk of wisdom. Now, number six. I said there were five walks, right? Well, let me finalize the structure of these last three chapters. There's five walks, and there's one stand. There's five walks, and there's one stand. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might put on the full armor of god so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil you see beloved christian if your life if your life is characterized by these five walks if your life looks like this then you are going to be attacked. You are going to be attacked. And you need to be ready, and and your life needs to be characterized not only by these five walks, but also standing firmly against the schemes of the devil and the strength of the Lord. The upshot here is that spiritual warfare will find us when we take our walks seriously. We must have the armor of God to protect us when this warfare hits us. When we walk in the footsteps of our Lord, when we walk in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul, we will be tested. And it is our responsibility not only to walk, but also to stand strong. Now that we understand then, The structure of these final chapters let's go back to Ephesians 4 1 and look more closely at the worthy walk back in chapter 4 verse 1 it says walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called the Greek adverb translated worthy of here in Ephesians is used six times in the New Testament five of those uses refer to our acting worthy of God or worthy of the gospel or worthy of our heavenly calling there are four other uses. One would be 3 John 1.6, You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Paul uses it in Thessalonians 2.12, Walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Paul again uses it in Colossians 1.10. He says, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And he also uses it in Philippians one twenty seven. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now if you don't get that clear that we are as Christians to act in a way, to conduct ourselves in a way that is manner or, or worthy of the manner or manner worthy of the gospel, manner worthy of God. If you don't understand that then there's a problem. Now let me make a clear distinction here. Make a clear distinction. Because sometimes as Christians we can get this off kilter. We are not called to walk this way because we will receive favor from God for walking in this way. If you are a Christian, you have already received every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. You have been adopted. That's chapter four, chapter 1, verse 4. You have been adopted as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. That is chapter 1, verse 5. You have been sealed and secured in the Holy Spirit of promise. That's chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. You have been made alive together with Christ and raised up and seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That's chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. You have been saved by grace through faith. That's chapter 2, verse 8. See, beloved, when you, when you are saved, you've been given everything by His grace, not as a result of works so that no man may, may boast. So to walk worthy of the Lord means to walk in a way uh, that the Lord deserves from us, not in a way that we deserve to get something from the Lord. You see, we're called to walk in a way that's befitting to a king. King Jesus. I think Colossians 1.10 has the the key to understand Paul's call. He says this, Walk worthy of the Lord to please Him. See, we walk worthy of the Lord in order to please Him, but but the the writer of Hebrews says in uh, Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. So we're called to walk... The, so the call to walk worthy of the Lord is at some level a walk of faith. Now, the writer of Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 once says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now watch this. Watch this. The world wants us to walk according to the lust of our flesh according to the course of this world. The moment you decide to walk in a different direction, you are different. You're going to be called out. As Christians, that's the way we formerly walked. So God is calling us to an entirely different life, an entirely different path. He's calling you to something completely different. Just think of our young friends hunter and andrew the marines will expect a whole new level of discipline of them when they go to the marines they're going to be expected to sit straight which is what not what they're doing right now they're going to be expected to live a life of discipline no matter what they're doing why is it worth that effort Well, the promise is that they will grow strong. They will stop being boys and they'll start being men. Men who will be able to overcome obstacles in their life and become warriors and protectors. How do we know the worthy walk is pleasing to God and worth the effort? Listen again to the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We've already seen the first part, and without faith it is impossible to please Him. Then he says this, For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. We walk in faith and obedience knowing that God will reward those who seek Him. As John Bunyan stated, faith alone can see the reality of what the gospel saith. End quote. Faith alone can see the reality of what the gospel saith. You see, we're called as Christians. We personify humility and gentleness when the world says we ought to be proud and harsh. We... We practice patience and forbearance when the world says we need to push to get our own way. We preserve unity and peace when the world wants nothing but war. You see, as Christians, we go against the grain. And oh, by the way, some of you may die for it. Some of you may die for Having to, or for following Christ by faith. Why do we do that? Why are we willing to do that? If you, in fact, are willing to do it, why are you willing to do this? It's because you know that God is a rewarder to those who follow Him by faith. It takes great faith to turn away from the world and follow Christ in His ways. Beloved, if, if you are a Christian, God is calling you to this worthy walk. Now, let me briefly say to those who are not following Christ, the first step, and we've seen it already, the first step in this journey is found in Matthew sixteen twenty-four, where Christ says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But he says this in verse 25, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want to save your life and go follow the world because you think that's going to get you something? What he's saying is you lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, you will find life eternal. Truly find life. You see, Jesus went to the cross just a few months after that statement. But the horrific part of the cross, we think of the cross and if you've done any study of the cross and what happened to Jesus, uh the the physical suffering that he underwent, beloved, the horrific part of the cross was not the whips, it was not the beatings. It wasn't even the Roman cross where he's hanging there uh, suffocating. It wasn't the nails uh, driven through his hands or or his wrist and his and his ankles. It wasn't that. Oh, it it was it was that But it was so much more. It was the wrath of the Father poured out on His Son for the sins of the world. He died for your sins if you'd only believe. If you'd only believe. That's how it starts. For those who have already taken up your cross... I hope you will join me over these next several months as we learn more about how Christ desires us to walk the worthy walk. I'll leave you with this quote from John Bunyan. God's people are faithful in good works according to the proportion of their faith. If they be slender in good works, it is because they are weak in faith. Therefore, the way to be a more fruitful Christian is to be stronger in believing, end quote. The way we know and see a fruitful Christian is the one who walks the worthy walk, gladly and with joy, out of obedience to please his Master. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning again pray that you would use this sermon in the lives of those who hear it. Father, I pray that you would save those who don't know you. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen those who do so that they may walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Father, we see the importance in the life of the church. We see see the importance in the life of the church at Ephesus, the need to be unified, to be able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Father, here at Grace Bible Church, we have also need to be unified so that we might be more effective in preaching the gospel to those who need to hear it to those who have not bowed the knee to Baal, so to speak. We thank you and praise you for your goodness to us and your mercy in Christ's name. Amen.